Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Would you believe that, as a writer, your online platform doesn't have to be a chore or a burden? Through Blog School's online courses, novelist Carrie Claire shares what she's learned from more than 20 years of blogging to help authors take advantage of blogging's elasticity and create individualized platforms that deepen creative connections. Head to myblogschool.ca slash the shit to take our quiz and start dreaming up a blog that fits your life and makes it even richer. That's myblogschool.ca slash the shit. Before we begin this week's episode, we'd like to give you a heads up about an announcement that's coming next week, Thursday. The Shit No One Tells You About Writing is going to be doing only one retreat in 2023, as opposed to the two we did in 2022. And boy, is it going to be a goodie. 
Listen out next week for details of our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing Deep Dive Workshop Series. We'll have two different tiers of early bird pricing that you're absolutely going to want to take advantage of, but there are limited spots, so don't miss out. Bookings open on Thursday the 24th. Our website, theshitaboutwriting.com, will include all the information as well as the booking links. So make sure you check that out on the 24th. Welcome everyone to an unsupervised episode of Books with Hooks. It's just Cece and Carly here and Bianca is not here to keep time. That means I might speak for five hours. You never know. All right, first submission. Here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Since discovering your podcast, I have absolutely inhaled it. I've learned so much from all three of you and I'm submitting to Cece because of her keen questions and knack for opening up new story possibilities. My novel, Kaida, is an 86,000 word young adult urban fantasy that would appeal to fans of the fierce female protagonist, diverse world, secret organization, and close to home mystery in Legendborn. Kaida is my main character's origin story, and ideally the first in a series. Trained from a young age on the finer points of staking and silver bullets, 17-year-old Emmeline Kaida Cordial knows that running into a naked guy in the woods the morning after the full moon, age-appropriate and unreasonably attractive as he may be, is a big, bright red flag. And that's before hearing about the knight's corresponding fatal, quote, animal attack, unquote. Still, she can't take this to the Institute, the secret government's organization that deals with all things paranormal, without proof. Her family has a reputation there. Well, her dad did before he died, and Emmeline will once she's able to attend their feeder college next year. Finding Logan, aforementioned naked guy, is not that hard in the age of the internet, especially not when he's a member of a rising local band that dances right across her sister's For You page. But everything that comes after, his declaration of innocence, the institutes descending on their town, and the undeniable attraction between them is. With help from her supernatural storm chaser of an uncle, still grieving mother, and budding baby witch of a younger sister, Emmeline must find the real killer before the institute finds Logan. Because the longer the institute is in town, the less Emmeline trusts them, the more she's forced to question what kind of legacy her father left her. Forever inspired by powerful women, I grew up on the Hunger Games and Hellmouths before carrying on to get degrees in psychology, nursing, and human development. I am half Japanese-American, which influences my writing, and a member of SCBWI. I currently live in California with my husband, daughter, and small flock of chickens. Thank you for your time, Amanda. So Cece, tell us what you thought about that query letter. Okay, so we have agreed to share word count. This is 370 words, strong word count in my opinion. I want to say, like as a very, very minor note, I would write close to home in with hyphens since it's modifying the word mystery. Like it's totally fine either way. It's more of a stylistic choice than anything, but it's something I caught, so I'm sharing it. And now let's talk big picture stuff. Okay, this is going to be all about framing. The query letter's job is to sell your book to the agent, right? Like you're trying to get us to go, oh my gosh, I have to read this. So how you frame something really, really matters. Origin stories are tricky, right? Unless we're already invested in the protagonist. For example, Maleficent. So I would not frame this as your character's origin story. I don't know who your character is, right? So like, I just would not frame it like that. Another framing note. 
I recommend framing it as standalone with series potential. If that's true, of course, don't lie to us. But, you know, to say ideally the first in a trilogy, I worry that you're going to have some agents going, well, I don't want to work with trilogies because they're just too hard. Like the first book has to sell really well in order for there to be more books. So why not say standalone with series potential? Again, assuming that's true. All right. Now let's talk framing of the plot paragraph. I want to say excellent job of showing the hero's arc, right? Like it's it's very clear to me what the hero's journey is, what her goal is, what the obstacle is, what the 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 twist is, what the conflict between love and trust is. It's it's all so clear to me and you did it in 370 words, which is so impressive. However, I would reframe the way it unfolds to make it even more compelling. So right now, the first paragraph has the significance of her run-in with Logan buried in the line about the animal attack. I realize that she only finds out about the attack afterwards, but I think you can compress to lead with that. You can lead with the attack that shook the town or whatever, plus protagonist running into the obvious suspect equals protagonist going on a journey to find suspect to make a name for herself with the Institute, right? But then the journey gets complicated because it's not not all as, as it seems, which is great, both regarding suspect and regarding the Institute. So that's how I would frame it. Like attack, runs into suspect, leads her to go on a journey. And then there's the twists of the journey as opposed to ran into suspect. He's cute. Red flag. Oh, and then you find out about the attack. So it, it just makes it more juicy and more compelling, even if that's not exactly the order in which it happens in the story, because it's okay to compress to a degree. So that is my note in the plot paragraph. It is a very strong query letter. You should be very proud of yourself. And thank you so much for sharing. So here is what happens. The protagonist is practicing staking with her mom. And through interiority, we learned that she used to do this with her dad, who was more supportive, but he's unfortunately dead. She decides to work on knives, which is something she's really good at. And her mom was really good at too. And then we learn how their parents met. We learn, this is all through interiority, we learn how her great-grandparents, after they got back from internment camp, they wanted to fit in, which led to a loss of a whole bunch of things, including their language and culture, pressure to assimilate. The protagonist doesn't blame them, of course, but she doesn't want a normal life, and that's something that they wanted. Then we have a memory of when she was 10 and a scary thing she saw, a supernatural thing. And the prospect of seeing scary things doesn't terrify her. She actually wants the adventure. She wants the excitement. We learn about her dad's work at the Institute. We hear the signs of foot soldiers outside. And we learn that she can't go out the morning after the full moon because it's prime time for like the undead to be roaming about. But she started sneaking out after her dad died. So, yep, that's what she's going to do right now. She's going to sneak out. So that's essentially what happens. As for my analysis, okay, let's start with micro stuff first. This is 100% a preference, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. I would not start with dialogue. Start with interiority, not narration, interiority. That's because it is the closest you can get to someone's psyche in any art form. So Use that, leverage that. And if you're going to start with dialogue, because let's face it, tons of good books do. I'm thinking of Everybody Rise. It's a great book. It starts with dialogue. If you're going to start with dialogue that's like really unique, really specific and intriguing, the line right now is harder, Emmeline. And not not a bad line, but you know, it's not making me go, oh my gosh, you know, what what is that? What is that referring to in a way that's making me really intrigued? And they are working on a 
on Jerry, who's a practiced torso. And that's explained right away. You know, the line reads, she slams our collective stake deep into Jerry, our disembodied, well-worn target practice torso. I would remove that explanation. Like, I want to think that Jerry's a person. My brain is going to assume that. And then, you know, maybe a paragraph or two below, naturally, I would learn that Jerry is actually a practice torso. So kind of spook me a little with that, you know, like a mom and a daughter are staking Jerry and then, oh, Jerry's a practice torso. That makes sense. I would, I would like to leverage the pieces of the puzzle coming together a little bit more. I want to say that there was humor in this, which was so appreciated. The line about her parents meet cute, which was kind of gory because they they met in the middle of, you know, killing people, killing supernatural beings, which I really liked. So I, I really liked a whole bunch of things here, and I've highlighted these things for you. I am worried, however, that, and you probably could tell this when I was describing what happened in your first five pages, there's a lot of backstory. I appreciate the work you put into the backstory. I hope that you keep this work because it's important work that every storyteller needs to invest time in to figure out. I love the questions of belonging, identity, the self-exploration she's going in. But right now, catching up the reader on who she is and what she wants is not the best use of your first five pages. Instead, I think that you should bake this into a story. Right now, you're serving this as an appetizer. Here's the appetizer. It's the backstory. And then, you know, the the main dish is going to come later. Let's not do that, right? Like, I would choose a more compelling scene, not a scene where she's training with her mom, not unless you're going to weave in something into that scene that's going to have power imbalance and allow the backstory to be revealed a little slower because we don't have to know all these details in the first five pages. We There are things that are interesting that we can know now, but there are things that are interesting and we can know later. So I did mark those moments for you. I was like, gosh, we're still learning about backstory. Are you sure this is intentional? And maybe that is your vision for it. And listen, it's your book. But I would reframe. And I did notice at the very end, this was the very last page, that she does sneak out, right? And she has started sneaking out the morning after the full moon since her dad died, which got me thinking, well, if it's the morning after the full moon when she's training with her mom, she was probably anticipating sneaking out. And we didn't get that interiority, and I really wanted it. So I recommend that you read totally different genre. But just the first chapter, if you want to read the whole thing, it's great. But just the first chapter of Wild Game, the protagonist is at dinner with her family and she is going to sneak out that evening. And the way the author weaves in that teenage anticipation of having to sneak out is so well done. So I would recommend reading that just to see how this author did it because And again, Wild Game is like one of my all-time favorite books because it's just so good. But yeah, those are my notes. Thank you so much for sharing. Your concept, super inventive, super fun. The writing is, is, is filled with humor and levity and I just really enjoyed it. I do think that we should focus on present day scene as opposed to backstory. And now let's go to Carly's query letter. All right. We are very unsupervised today and very disorganized. And I always feel like we've been doing this for a year and a half and more that like we're going on like two years and we still feel like little children that are like running around without a teacher to kind of get us in line up against the wall. But uh, <laughs> but here we are. That is exactly what it is. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Get it together. Waters. All right. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I have enjoyed your wisdom and critique on the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and I'm amazed by the wealth of knowledge you generously contribute to the writing community. I am submitting this query 
to Carly, as it features a strong female protagonist on an emotional journey that includes elements of romance in a contemporary small town setting. Bittersweet is an upmarket women's fiction novel complete at 93,000 words that readers of Trish Dollar's Float Plan and Debbie McOmer's Cottage by the Sea will enjoy. 36-year-old Paige Ferguson is suddenly on her own after a decade of marriage to her college sweetheart, Drew. Leaving behind a life in the big city and successful career in advertising, she tries to begin anew in Maidstone, a small lake community far from the bustling activity that characterizes her Chicago life. She first channels her energy into a home renovation, creating a place of her own. Then her efforts turn into a small cafe, and initial reception seems promising. But coffees don't generate profits comparable to her previous salary, and Paige struggles to adapt to keep her business afloat. An unforeseen accident threatens to bring her back to the beginning, and she wonders if she should just give up on it all. But she has new friends in Maidstone, including Alex, who began as a regular customer with the promise to be something more. Paige isn't certain she's ready to share more of her life and her doubts are solidified when Alex reveals that his life includes complications she decided wouldn't be part of hers. Is this a sign that Paige should compromise on her position? Or can Alex change his expectations? Or should she just realize that her best years were with the husband she lost and that she should have never tried to start over again? Bittersweet is a dual timeline exploration of Paige's past life with Drew while she tries to rebuild her life in Maidstone. It considers a woman's complicated relationship with career, relationships, and societal expectations. Content warning, the full manuscript contains discussion and descriptions of an abortion. I am an avid reader who enjoyed the many adventures of a life lived through books. In my real life, I have spent more than two decades managing an automotive dealership, providing far more insight into people's lives than most would realize. I enjoy traveling to new destinations and went home hosting family and friends, subjecting them to my latest recipe discoveries and creations. I live in a small town in Southern Ontario with my loving husband and daughter who have graciously supported my hours at the keyboard. I also have an eight pound Yorkie poo, Chase, who is much less understanding, but is my shadow all the same. I have pasted the first five pages of my manuscript below for your consideration. Thank you, Michelle E. Lewis. Thank you so much for that query letter, Carly. So what did you think of it? All right. So this one was 478 words. Alrighty. So here we go. I'm just deciding where to start. I, I think I'm just gonna start at the top like usual. So I'm gonna start with the comps in the in the category. Bittersweet is an upmarket women's fiction novel. However, the comps that you gave are very commercial, much more commercial than describing it as upmarket women's fiction. So either your book isn't upmarket or you need new comps. And based on you know what I've read later in the pages, I would just say that your book isn't upmarket. There's nothing wrong with that by any means. These labels are just things that we put on things to kind of help us organize them in our minds and how we pitch them. But I would say your book is not upmarket. So I would just take that out and that way these comps could probably still work for you. Okay, so I think... I think this ends up reading just a lot like synopsis. There's a lot of rhetorical questions and ultimately feels kind of passive because the big kind of question is like, can she go back in time or should she, you know, just accept her life where she is? I think ultimately the hook isn't really much of a hook, right? This is really just reality being lived on the page. A lot of people have these kind of, you know, complicated family stories and divorce and and starting over. And, And I think what I... What I struggle with is, you know, my job as an agent is to sell things, is to sell books, right? And so when I think about what is saleable and and how I can do my job, I struggle here a little bit with this one, especially with positioning and, and whether it can find a place in the marketplace because it is a bit quiet, you know, and 
in terms of, you know, whether I think that this book can find a home, you know, I'm not here to say one way or the other with absolutes, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a mind reader. I am not all knowing. So I don't know these things, but my gut tells me it's just too quiet. It's too quiet for the marketplace right now. It's, it's too internal. And we're just missing a bit of a, a bigger hook here to kind of keep readers, keep readers engaged on, on a large scale level. And I also think the, the Debbie Macomber cottage by the sea comp is tough because I absolutely think this is a great comp, but cottage by the sea sells because it's Debbie Macomber, not because it's cottage by the sea, if that makes sense. Right. Like, and so when we think about how somebody's going to debut, you know, how they're going to stand out in the marketplace, you know, I, I would think this would be a really tough sell. I think it would be a tough sell because the tension here and the tension here with this dual timeline, it says the dual timeline explores, you know, Paige's past life with Drew and her present. But if we know that the relationship ends and we're living through a past timeline that we know the ending of, it can be simultaneously kind of satisfying, you know, that's like, okay, we know what to expect. That's comforting. We know that the relationship ends. So we're trying to figure out why it ended, but there's no tension because again, we know that the relationship ends. So, so yeah, I think this is such a tough one. And I always hate being a downer. I hate being a bummer. And I think you guys know that about me, but it, it, this isn't a matter of this book or not being good. I don't think this is a matter of like what is quote unquote good or not good. I think this is just a matter of marketability and marketplace. And this one just feels quiet. This one just feels quiet for me. So I, this would be something that I would pass on just because it feels teensy bit quiet, unfortunately. I so get that as an agent and at as a reader, I am always like, but I love quiet stories. So it's like, there's two little people living inside my head playing tug of war, but yeah, it makes total sense. Thank you so much for sharing Carly. And what did you think of the pages? All right. So for our summary pages, and then I'll get into what I'm thinking about them. So the summary of the pages is our main character page. We have a timestamp of September, 2018. She is in her car taking in the building in front of her. So she's talking about what it looks like. She has just purchased this building. And, and so we're kind of getting a sense of, of her kind of walking in. She's just she like a tape measure and she's, she's kind of thinking about the past, thinking about the future, you know, as I said, walking through, walking through the building, just kind of observing it and, and really just going through all the details of, of what it looks like. In terms of my analysis, my first note is I would switch the first and second paragraphs and I'll read them to you so you can kind of see the order. So this is the way that they're currently written. Paige sat in her car, taking in the building that stood before her. The warmth from her heated seats did little to comfort in the face of the structure's dreary facade. Dirty white concrete compromised the structure's lower exterior wall while beige siding covered the second floor that would eventually be her home. She pressed a finger against the corner of her eye, quelling the persistent twitch present since the day she made her purchase. It worked so long as she held her finger in place, but she knew the twitch would return as soon as she moved it. So I would put the twitch paragraph above the sitting in the car, taking in the building in front of her. But ultimately, I think this is a very kind of average scene in an average person's life. And I and that's why I, I struggle with, with saleability here because... It makes the book feel ordinary and feel average, which there is a value in analyzing an average life. We are really, we're all living average lives. Like we're all people. We're just, we're all just people. All of our lives are average, but I think we really need to get at what is the most interesting thing about this person's life. And so if we're to say, okay, so she, you know, broke up with her husband is starting over, you know, she's 
she's looking at this building that she just bought potentially her her house or you know i think we're not sure if it's like the cafe that she's going to buy or or the house but it you know maybe a combination of both i think i'm just i i just spent these pages trying to figure out what is the most interesting thing that's happening here and and i and i struggled i struggled a bit you know and i i think uh, you know as you guys have heard me say it's not like we have to start each book with a a car crash or a house on fire right like that's not that's not the point the point is just figuring out how we can make this stand out, how we can make somebody you know, really engaged with, with this. And, and ultimately, I think, you know, also based on the pitch, the interiority of these pages just tell me this is a really interior novel. That, that's just, you know, that's what this book is. And, and I also don't like on this segment trying to make a book something that it's not, you know, that's not my job. That's not our job on this podcast. I, I just kind of look at this as a, you know, with my agent lens and, and that this is the way that I, that I evaluate things. And so sometimes I wish I can always you know, tell everybody exactly what they want to hear and, and wave a, a magic wand and, and make the industry something that it's not. But, you know, we, we have to kind of work within the confines of this industry and the boxes that we put things in. And and I right now just feel like interior women's fiction is just is tough, man. It's tough. There is a universal truth to being a writer, which is every single writer out there wants to hear the following line from an agent. I love this. This is perfect. Let's submit right now and get you a million dollars for it. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. <laughs> At least not very often. Yeah. And I, I think I think here, as I said, it's not a matter of like what is good and what is bad, right? Like I actually think the writing is good. I think the, I think the writing is good. It's just, do I think I can sell this book? Unfortunately, my answer would be no. We sell to a market. That makes sense. All right. Thank you so much for that analysis, Carly. Let's do this. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I was so thrilled to hear you accepting resubmissions because in my original submission of Unhinged, I broke one of the books with hooks, Golden Rules. I started in the wrong place. As such, I would love for you to reconsider my new query and pages, which begin, in my humble opinion, in the correct place. On the list of things society expects of an almost 30-year-old, Cal has just one thing going for her, Wilson St. James. She spent most of her 20s trying to convince him to love her, and he spent most of his trying to wash his hands of her. It's hardly romantic, but it's all she's got. So when Wilson dumps her with an ick list of the precise reasons he's decided to walk away, Cal begins to spiral. With 199 days until she turns 30 and absolutely nothing to show for it. She embraces her chaos, floundering around her hometown of Austin, Texas, as she searches for the many reasons to prove Wilson right. Deep in her unhinged era, Cal is shocked when Nathan, a seemingly stable dreamboat of an accountant, confesses his love for her. She's less shocked when he reveals his long-distance girlfriend of almost a decade, who he, quote, wants to break up with but can't, end quote. It's par for the course of her life, him being someone else's. His divided devotion is harmless and even familiar until Cal suddenly loses one of her closest and only friends to an accidental fentanyl poisoning. Thus, while Nathan is with his girlfriend, Cal grieves alone. Desperate for solace, she retreats to the comfort of Wilson. Yet when the reality of juggling two tainted loves at once comes knocking on her door in the form of a sexually transmitted infection, Cal is forced to accept the consequences of her chaos while inching towards 30 as lost and lonely as ever. About the unfair pressure society puts on women in their late 20s, Unhinged, 75,000 words, is an upmarket women's fiction that mirrors the comedic yet heart-wrenching realism of Dolly Alderton's and Candice Cardi-Williams. 
If you've belted Brutal by Olivia Rodrigo while driving away from your many, many problems, then you and Cal will get along just fine. My stories have been named prize winners in Writer's Digest and Tulip Tree, as well as featured in literary magazines such as Sunlight Press, Heartland Society of Women, Blue River Review, and various others. I graduated with a degree in English literature from Santa Clara University, where I was named the 2017 Canterbury Fellow. Prior to college graduation, I interned as a book publicist for Spark Point Studio. Now, Based in Cal's beloved hometown of Austin, Texas, I spend each morning writing before logging on to my full-time job as senior brand marketing strategist for a major tech company. While I occasionally have my unhinged moments, I'm mostly trying to kickstart what I hope is a very long career as a published author. All the best, Mary Maeve McGeorge. All right, Cece, what did you think of that one? Thank you so much for resubmitting. I really appreciate getting resubmissions. I always find it interesting. I wish, you know, this is something that we might want to consider. You might want to include the previous query letter with the resubmission. I don't know if Bianca will allow it, but I vote that we do that because I would love to be able to compare, not to read in the show because we won't have time, but just so I could compare. Here's here are my notes. I would move the paragraph that starts with about the unfair pressure society puts on women to the very top. Probably you're going to do this anyway when you query agents. Probably the first paragraph that's in this query letter is just because this is for books with hook segment. So ignore me if you already know this, but that's what I would do. I would put the metadata up on top. I have to be totally honest. I don't know what the clause deep in her unhinged era means. Like I think of era like like era in time. Maybe there's another meaning to the word. I did not look it up. I should have, but it just confused me. I also, I realize you're using unhinged intentionally, but I don't know, this this is actually at the heart of what I'm struggling with the story. And I'll just be totally honest. Okay, truth bomb time. I'm struggling with like, what exactly is this woman's problem? Not because I don't get that being almost 30 and unmarried isn't a thing for most women as a problem or for some women, I should say. But I do think that we've kind of evolved as a society when it comes to that. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just people I hang out with. I realize that it depends so much on like where you are in the world, like who you're hanging out with. But I think that it's a little 1950s to suggest that, you know, there's a clock for marriage and mortgage and children. And that clock is 30. I still think the clock exists, unfortunately. I just don't think it's 30. So I'm a little confused by that. But I think that, you know, if that's the heart of your story, you can pull it off, no problem, as long as you make the interiority of the character really believable. So we'll get to that when I critique the pages, but I just would be careful with the word unhinged in the query letter. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's intentional. When the fentanyl poisoning line came, I was like, wait, what? It just felt like a completely different plot event for a completely different book. Again, maybe it'll work when I read the pages. When it comes to the climax, the line that starts with, yet when the reality of juggling two tainted loves at once comes knocking on her door, I'm thinking, okay, this makes me think that I'd need more plot to read this book. Now, this is a me problem. I, Cece, would need more plot to read this book. And A, maybe more plot exists. You're just not adding it to the query letter. Or maybe it's just not the book for me, which let's face it, I'm one person, right? Like there's so many people out there and this book might be for someone else. I certainly hope so. I just worry that it's all interior and that actually her problem at the climax is the same as her problem in the beginning, which is 
she doesn't have someone and she wants someone because turning 30 is is tragic in in her book and I realized that things have happened of course her friend's death for example is quite serious but it just felt like it was coming out of left field so so I don't know I, I think this still needs work if it's going to make sense in my head but it doesn't have to right like it has to make sense in your head so yeah those are my notes all right Cece tell us what is happening in these pages what is going on here okay so the protagonist is celebrating her birthday with her boyfriend and there's the cake is chocolate. She does not like chocolate cake and her full name is written on the cake. She does not like her full name and she contemplates how it's her birthday and how she's worried about his feelings. And through interiority, we learned that she's in the last year of her twenties. This is her 29th birthday and she has nothing to show for it. People keep asking her questions about, you know, her career her relationship, being married, babies, and she has no good answer. Everyone else is essentially like tracking hormones and having babies and signing up for mortgages. And she seems to have given up. Her mom calls and she puts her mom on speaker. And, you know, in addition to like singing happy birthday and be having a really sweet moment with her mom, her mom like asks about her boyfriend and says something like, he better have given you a ring or else. And she takes her mom off speaker. And there's essentially like more contemplating on uh, on her situation after that. So that is what happens. Okay, so my analysis of these pages. I like the line, it's my birthday, yet I don't want to upset him. And two or three paragraphs after that, I would dig even deeper because that line makes me go, okay, so why is she worried about him on her birthday? There has to be a reason. The power imbalance is off. And power imbalance makes me go, okay, interesting. But in order for that to work, again, my vision, totally subjective, you have to remove the line that comes right after that, which is, he is, after all, the only thing I have going for me. Only positive response I can provide in the list of questions society asks of a 29-year-old woman. The reason why I think you should remove that is because you're explaining. So it's a little on the nose. Now, it's on the nose for my taste. There are tons of books in the New York Times bestseller lists that do this, and it works really well. So if that's your vision, please keep it. I think it has to be a little bit more subtle for it to land. Because so much of this is interior, right? So the interiority can't be spelled out if the interiority is the crux of the tension and conflict. Same thing with, okay, so we get to the end of the first full page, right? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, she has ultra awareness. She knows exactly what's going on in her life. She knows exactly what her problems are. She's thinking about how unfair it is in terms of society. Like it's so much awareness, which If I were her therapist, and I'm not even a therapist, but if I were, I'd be like, brava, you have so much awareness. This is amazing. But as a protagonist, her ultra awareness means I have no room to put the pieces of the puzzle together myself as a reader. And again, is this intentional? If it is, by all means, keep it. If it's not, if you'd like the reader to be participating a little bit more, then I would just tone it down a little bit, just dial it down. Again, and a a question I have, a practical question You mentioned the questions that society asks of women, right? Like, how's your job, your friends, your love life? Are you saving? Thoughts on children? Time is running out, you know. These are the questions that are asked of her. Totally fair. I've been there. My question is, when she thinks of her life, she doesn't think of her career. But that's one of the questions that's asked of her. And it's something that our society places a lot of value on. You know, what do you do? Like, it's one of the first questions we ask someone when we meet someone. So, I 
am wondering, is it intentional that we're getting nothing on her career? Because I want to know, you know, like I, I want that to be on the page. And if you don't want to share what it is just now, because there's a reveal coming, perhaps a clue to get me theorizing. It's very important to get the reader theorizing. And now I want to talk about big picture stuff. I know this is the protagonist talking and that she, of course, has been brainwashed by society. But I still want to say to me that the idea of a woman being 30, and that is essentially like the end of the road, does feel a little 1950s. I mentioned this when I read the query letter. And I was like, well, okay, you know, if this is at the heart of the novel, all it means is it might not be something that I can relate to. And that's fine, because not every book is for me. But I did struggle with that. And I especially struggled with how it was presented. It's just, it was mentioned to us, like in every single page, I highlighted the references for you. And I was like, really, do we need another reference? We get it. She's almost 30. This is, you know, not good for her. When it comes to her relationship with the boyfriend, I wanted there to be dialogue. I don't think it's natural that they would be in silence for so long. I also wanted to understand why she put her mom on speaker. Like why? Is is it unusual for her mom to have asked that question about the ring? If so, I want surprise in her interiority. Is it not unusual? If so, did she do it on purpose to pressure him? I also wanted her to clock his reaction when her mom said that. She was paying attention to everything except for his reaction. But of course, his reaction should be the first thing she pays attention to since she scrambles to take the phone off speaker. I just wanted more context on that slip up. And also... I wanted to feel like we've spent four pages, right? Four, pa- four pages essentially establishing that 30 is a death sentence and all she has is Wilson, but he's not really hers. Is it intentional that she has no hope of a ring? Like that she has also given up? Because to me, if she has given up already, that might be super realistic and in keeping with what you want your character's interiority to be. But it also means that the reader has no expectation. And so if the reader has no expectation, the reader isn't going, oh, I wonder if that's going to happen because the reader is also going, okay, yeah, end of the road. And I think that strips away the tension. This is, I want to be, I want to say this again, this is very much a me problem. If this is your vision for your book, keep it. But I personally think dial down the awareness, at least the explanation of the awareness. She can still be just as aware. She doesn't have to think about it. Up the dialogue and a little bit more context on the phone slip up because I think there's potential for tension there, but I need more to really feel like that's, you know, bubbling in, at the surface. So thank you so much for sharing. All right, Carly, let's go to your final query letter. Dear Ms. Waters, I admire the fiction of your authors, especially Susie Orman Schnall. Margarita D'Souza, a Eurasian young woman in colonial Macau, China, will never trust another man. After losing her virginity to her violin instructor, a bitterly disappointing experience, she discovered he had a wife. As she confronts her shame and regret, Margarita decides the different standards for men and women are unfair. Though she's given up on love, she still wants passion. She's already ruined, after all. And it's 1938, not the 19th century. British railway magnate Charles Goodwin wants no attachments. If his mother could deceive his father for years, how could he ever trust any woman? While he's in Hong Kong on business, Charles is invited to nearby Macau, where he meets Margarita. The instant attraction is as intense as the dislike on both sides. Judging by the way he kisses, Margarita believes he could give her the explosive affair she craves. He is only too eager to comply, but he won't bed her yet. Certainly not while he's a guest in her parents' house. As Charles and Margarita spend time together in Macau and Hong Kong, they find a surprising connection. They miss each other while he goes back to England. While he's away, she realizes she is carrying the child of her rotten first lover. 
Although in the beginning, she believes she had escaped this fate. Afraid she will lose Charles, she agonizes over how to tell him once he returns. Just when she gathers her courage to confess, he tells her he is illegitimate. He says he could never be like his father who forgave the woman that lied to him and raised another man's son as his own. As an own voices adult historical romance novel set in a context where tension between tradition and modernity simmer amid conflicting ideals, a scandal, a scoundrel, and a wicked woman will speak to readers in the Me Too era. With not-so-innocent heroine and a slightly wounded hero, the story will appeal to fans of Scarlett Peckham's The Rakess and Grace Burroughs' My One and Only Duke. The full manuscript is complete at 90,500 words. I am a historian and the author of Chinese Mexicans, Trans-Pacific Migration and the Search for a Homeland, 1910 to 1960, North Carolina, 2012. And this novel is based on my research. My short fiction appears in the Florida Review, the Coachella Review, the Hopper, and has been nominated for Best of the Net Anthology. My short nonfiction is the current issue of Hayden's Fairy Review. I am a member of Romance Writers of America, Women's Fiction Writers Association, and the Historical Novel Society. I am building my online platform on Twitter and my website. I include the first five pages. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely yours, Julia. Thank you so much for reading that query letter, Carly. What did you think of it? All right. So for our word count, we're at 482. And now, now let's get into it. So the tone here was very interesting to me. So it is historical, but it's being pitched really modernly. There's a lot of like exclamation points. And yeah, I don't know. I was just trying to figure out the vibe, as people say, the, the vibe here. I was trying to do a vibe check because it confused me a little bit about the way that it's being written, as I said, versus the time period, which is always an interesting juxtaposition. Overall, I think this is a really interesting plot. I mean, it's really juicy. I think there's there's a lot to work with here. A lot that's really interesting. I think it's a pretty long for a romance novel. I don't know in particular what the kind of end cap is right now for for romance. I don't rep a ton of it in the kind of category romance space. So I might not be the best person to to kind of comment in word count. It just sounds really long to me, especially because it would probably be in in you know the trade paper or mass market format. The last thing I wanted to comment on is this own voices bit. So my own voices, adult historical romance. So I don't know what is the own voices here because you are not from the 1930s unless you traveled in time, in which case I need you to write a memoir about your time travel experience. But all joking aside... You know, I, I think there's obviously a number of things that could be the own voices here, right? I think it could be the losing the virginity to the violin instructor, but right, you're, you're, you're allowing me to speculate a lot about what's the own voices. And so I, I also don't think that's the kind of the spirit of own voices either. And also there's been a lot of communication and discourse and dialogue about own voices, you know, whether it's really useful, whether it's kind of putting people in boxes and, and things like that. So I don't think we need own voices here, especially just because I'm, it creates a little bit more confusion and less clarity when we're always going for more clarity. So I would probably just, just remove that. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. All right. So what did you think of the pages? All right. So we start off chapter one. It says British Hong Kong, China, January 1938. So we start with our main character and her sister. They're up on a cliff. They went for a walk and they kind of ended their walk at the end of the cliff. And they're overlooking a bay with lots of boats and having an intimate conversation, kind of gossiping, you know, talking about like, oh, how long did everybody know? And have you told anyone else? And no, you know, and having this gossip, which we presume is to be about this violin teacher affair. So now they walk back to the house. They meet some other characters. We meet another sister. 
We meet a brother. We learn that the brother is going to be married. He's engaged and they're kind of going through all of the wedding drama. We're meeting a business partner and colleague. So we're meeting a whole lot of characters, you know, as we, as we kind of figure out that our main character has, has gotten herself into some trouble. And what did you think of the pages themselves? All right. So I really liked how scenic and dramatic this opening was. So it says the road ended at the edge of a steep cliff in no hurry to get back. Margarita D'Souza and her younger sister took a break from their walk and admired the view. Hugged by green slopes, the azure blue water of Victoria Bay glimmered in the sunlight. All manner of vessels dotted the marina. From here, the boats resembled so many toys floating in a bathtub. Where the bay met the open sea, however, the Royal Navy and Japanese warships looked anything but fanciful. How long before everyone knows what I did? And then we started to dialogue so we had this beautiful scenic panoramic kind of film-esque type of scene before us we have very vivid visual and then we get back into the intimate which is like the two sisters gossiping about this kind of situation that she got herself into with the violin instructor and so they're trying to figure out like has anybody does anybody else know is he going to tell anybody is she ruined all of this sort of stuff so yeah i think i think it's a really interesting opening my biggest critique here is a couple of things. We meet a lot of people and because it's in third person, we don't get to know any of them, which is always frustrating to me because I really want to get to know them. You know, I want to spend time with these characters. I want to feel invested in them. And so when the sisters are kind of gossiping, I'm like, oh, this is great. It was the perfect opportunity to like then slip into something interior. So we actually got Margarita's real point of view, but we didn't. We just kind of like went back to the house. And then all of a sudden there's like more characters, brother, another sister, a business partner. And again, all in third person. So we just didn't get to know anybody. So it was just a bit overwhelming for me and and really just, I think missed the opportunity for us to really just connect and then get to know these characters. So that would be my main suggestion here is just to think a little bit more in that perspective about how we're actually going to get interested and deeply invested in these characters while while working in third person. It's always a challenge and that is always the goal to feel invested in characters. And with that in mind, Carly and I would like to tell you about an upcoming webinar that we are offering. Carly, do you want to tell people about that? All right. Coming up on December 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we are going to be offering our very special co-hosted webinar. Cece, do you want to tell them what they're going to learn? It's going to be all about writing the perfect first five pages. So essentially, Carly and I are taking all the information that we have in our brains and putting them into slides and breaking it down in terms of what should be in your first five pages. It's going to be a two-hour workshop in which we'll cover things like what goes into a powerful opener, establishing a unique perspective, the essentials of a strong opening scene. We'll discuss things like, should your inciting incident be in the first five pages? What about prologue? How does prologue work? And can I even use popular tropes anymore? And what are the common mistakes that writers make in the first five pages? We'll give you a goof-proof checklist so you can leave the webinar with a checklist that you can then take to your work and make sure that you're doing everything right. And we'll have so much fun, and we hope that you can join us. We only teach this one once a year, so we really hope you'll come join us, hang out with us. It's a really fun evening. We'd love to kick off your holiday season with a little bit of work, a little bit of thinking, but to get you ready for January submission season. So come join us on December 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. All of the registration information can be found on our socials. And if you can't join us on the day, remember, you'll get a recording the day after the webinar that you can then watch for a limited period of time. 
Okay, that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Thank you so much for joining us. And Carly and I, well, especially me, apologize for being so out of it. Bianca, we miss you, Bianca. Come back. We're so glad the book is doing so well that it is taking you all over the world. But your little children, <laughs> your little children agents here need uh, need to, to line up for school. <laughs> we need helicopter hands. <laughs> Is your novel manuscript in need of structure and support? If so, I'm here to help. I'm Nicole, a certified book coach and developmental editor who helps fiction writers find their voice and develop stories so they can craft their best book yet. Right now, I'm offering a giveaway with a 50-page developmental edit and a 30-minute coaching call for writers like you. For a chance to win, go to theshitaboutwriting.com and enter on the giveaway page. You can also find me at NicoleMeyerAuthor.com or on Instagram at Nicole Meyer Writes. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. It's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest needs no introduction as he's one of the world's best-selling authors with sales of over 275 million copies in 97 countries. Famous for his discipline as a writer who works on up to 14 drafts of each book, he also brings a vast amount of insider knowledge to his books. Whether it's his own career in politics, his passionate interest in art, or the wealth of fascinating background detail inspired by by the extraordinary network of friends he has built over a lifetime at the heart of Britain's establishment, his novels provide a fascinating glimpse into a range of closed worlds. A member of the House of Lords, the author is married to Dame Mary Archer. They have two sons, two granddaughters, and three grandsons. He splits his time between London, Grantchester in Cambridge, and Mallorca, where he writes the first draft of each novel. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Geoffrey Archer. Geoffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bianca. Lovely to be on the show. It feels a bit surreal to be chatting with you because a little bit later I'm going to be discussing your one short story collection that I read in 1990 when I was 14 years old, which made me want to become a writer and which informed a lot of the twists and turns that I like putting in my own work, but we will get there. Now, for our listeners today, we're going to be talking about Next in Line, which is Jeffrey's latest book. But before we get there, Jeffrey, there's a few things I'd like to pick your brain about. One of which is, can you tell us about those 14 drafts of each novel that you write? Because we say on this podcast that writing is rewriting. So what does that process look like for you? I agree with that statement. And I always think uh, when people say to me, Jeffrey, I've just written a novel, that's exactly what they mean. They've written one draft. They expect it to be published next week. They expect to be number one on the New York Times the week after. And they expect to be world famous the week after that. And I have to tell them that it's very hard work. I still do 14 drafts of every book. And I wish there was a shortcut, Bianca. Of course I do. But until I find one, I will go on going back to the latest draft again and again and again, until you're only changing a word every couple of pages, a new sentence every 10 pages, a new paragraph every 20 pages, you're not there. You're not there. I can tell you from the second draft, third draft, fourth draft, the whole page is covered in new paragraphs and new ideas and new things. So you can go on and on and on. And I repeat, I wish there was a shorter process. I haven't found one. I rise at six in the morning. I work from six until eight. I work from 10 until 12. I work from two until four. I work from six until eight. I go to bed about 9.30, 10, up again at 5.30 the next morning. First draft is about 300 hours, about 45 days. And a year later, a thousand hours later, I hand the book in. 
Wow. That's fascinating how the first draft is about 45 days. And are you ever tempted when you're writing that first draft to tinker with it, to go back and move things around? Or are you firmly committed? No, you get it all done and then you'll come back. (laughs) I like to get the story down from beginning to end. I'm always frightened if I immediately went back and did chapter one again. I'd never get to chapter two. So I try to get the whole story down in that 45 days. But frankly, all it is at the end of the 45 days is the story. And it sometimes won't even link up. Sometimes the chapters are in the wrong order. Sometimes the wrong person's come in at the wrong place. That's when you go right back to the beginning again and start all over again. And you say, oh, chapter four ought to be chapter three. Chapter three ought to be chapter five, but we'll leave four exactly where it is. So you get that sort of thing. And of course, you build the character, you build the person. Uh, But the story, frankly, is there on the first draft. Amazing. And before you begin with that first draft, how much plotting and outlining do you do before you begin writing the first word? Uh, Very little. More recently, I must confess, but I used to try and find out what happened on the next page on the grounds that if I didn't know what happened on the next page, how could you know what would happen on the next page? And I have never had a letter in 40 years saying, Dear Geoffrey, oh, well, by page 15, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I've never had that. The only reason I haven't had it is because I don't know myself. So if... (laughs) Now, some people, they tell me they put stickers on the wall and they follow them religiously. And it, I I'm, would be terrified of that because I would think a really intelligent person would see the next six stickers coming. So if I don't know, you don't know. I love that. I'm the same. I hate plotting. I like being surprised, but it does make the writing a bit harder because those who do plot and outline and structure tend to not require the 14 drafts. But mm-hmm. for each writer, their process is their process. So we're going to come back to some well, no, well, let's bring that up, Bianca, mm. because it's a very important point. Your sentence for each writer, the process is the process. I am a lark. My wife is an owl. You've got to do what suits you. If you want to do four hours in a row once a day, fine. If you want to do eight hours a day, or you want to do one hour, you must do, really, you've got it in one. You must do what suits you. And my process may not suit someone listening to this program. But, hear this, but, you've still got to do the hard work. Absolutely. There's no shortcut on that. I always say to young authors, Bianca, go to the ballet. And they say, what do you mean? I say, go to the ballet. Why would I go to the ballet? I want you to see the prima ballerina. I want you to work out how many hours she's done to be the prima ballerina. Then I want you to look at the dancers behind her and know how many hours they've spent just to be on the stage with her. Then I want you to think about the thousands of young dancers who would love to be on the stage with the prima ballerina, but never make it. Why should it be any different from a, for an author who wants to be number one on the New York Times bestsellers list? However much talent you've got, however much talent you've got, damned hard work is the first thing you've got to get into your head. 100%. And that comes from bum in chair, right? So your advice to people who want to be authors is to write what you know, but to find good stories and put a twist on them. Can you elaborate on that? Well, when I say write about what you know, I've had a life in politics. 
I have, as you pointed out, a love of art. I've been lucky to meet some very interesting people. And so I use those advantages. But you will see my wife is uh, in the books. You will see her as Beth in the William Warwick series. It's my wife. Write about what you know about. Because the person reading it, the public, will go, oh, I believe that. Yes, I've got understood that. Yes, thank you. Don't write a sex story. Don't write a ghost story. Don't write a violent story. Don't write a book full of bad language because you think that's fashionable. Write a story that people want to turn the page. The rest will take care of itself. Absolutely. Unless you're a sex worker, then writing what you know is a book full of sex. Uh, and if you I have a potty, yeah, so, and it. So be it. <laughs> and if you have a potty mouth, then you can include that because that's what you know. So something that I wanted to chat to you about that I said went back to when I was 14. What we've discussed on this podcast is that a plot twist is something that the reader didn't even see coming. They didn't know to wait for it. They weren't in any way expecting it. It just seems to come out of left field, whereas a reveal is something that they've been patiently waiting for because you've alluded to it and it's been building up to it and they're waiting for that. Now, I remember reading your short story collection, A Twist in the Tale, like I say, back in 1990 when I was 14. And I remember having my mind blown by some of the twists in these stories because I would think we were going in one direction and then you would do this complete twist and we'd be going somewhere else. And I'm thinking now of Ignatius and the Swiss banker. There was also a story in which the assassin, you hid the pronouns throughout the story without the reader catching it. You kept referring to their name. And so you played into our stereotypes of what we expected an assassin to be. So we thought the assassin would be a man. And then there was the big twist that the assassin was a woman who we had seen on the page a lot and just didn't expect to be the assassin. So for writers who are wanting to do twists and reveals, what's your advice there? You can't give advice, Bianca, to be honest. These just come that morning. These just, maybe I, I sit there and say, I'm going to make her a woman, but I'm not going to let anyone know it's a woman. I'm going to give little clues that some people will pick up, but I won't reveal, to use your word, until the last moment. And then there are others where I do know where I'm going. I do know what I want to do, but I still try to deceive you. I once had a letter from a lady who said, you are, without exception, uh, Lord Archer, the most devious man in England. Please, can you tell me when your next book is coming out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And writing is deception. But here's the thing. We want to deceive our readers in such a way that they don't see the deception and that they don't feel manipulated. Because I think that's the big difference. I think anyone can try and yank the reader along and deceive them and manipulate them. But the reader starts to feel manipulated and they start to see the smoke and mirrors. Whereas if you do it incredibly well, they don't even realize that they have been manipulated. You're absolutely right. If they feel they've been manipulated, they will either throw the book on one side and not bother to go any further. You've kind of got to take them on the journey and then realize when the book is over, I should have spotted that on page 43. I certainly should have got it by page 112. And you mustn't cheat. There's one or two very famous authors who 
suddenly bring in a character in the last few pages or suddenly bring in a piece of information in the last few pages. No, drop the piece of information in on page 12. But the great secret about doing that, as Corley Smith, who was my editor for Cain and Abel, brilliant editor of J.D. Salinger, taught me, when you drop that line that's going to tell you everything, make the next line so startling they forget it. But when they come to the end of the book, say, oh, my God, he told me on page 12. I was half asleep. So you say he turned right at the road and was the only person there. And you think, I've got it. He's the murderer. And then you say, and suddenly behind him, the car crashed into it. Three people were killed and they were covered in ice cream. You go, and so you've lost the sentence that was the important one. Now, that was too extreme. But that's the game you play with the reader. Uh, my problem is, after 26 books, is the readers are sitting waiting for me. I mean, they're, they're an evil lot, my readers. They sit there, right, Jeffrey, what are you up to? And they sort of are sitting waiting. So I have to be even more cunning. Absolutely. And there's nothing better than hiding something in plain sight. I love when I'm surprised like that and I go back and I reread everything and I start to see the mastery of how I was deceived. And like you say, I go, oh man, there it was, page 12. Because I remember with the book about your assassin, I went, for God's sake, he constantly called this person by their first name. He never used pronouns. How did I not see that? So that when it turned out to be a woman, I was like, oh, come on, I really should have been paying more attention. So uh, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. All right. So for our listeners, let's talk a bit about Next in Line. I'm going to read you the blurb copy so that you're on the same page as we are. 48 hours to track down a killer, even less time to save your country. London 1988, royal fever sweeps the nation as Britain falls in love with the people's princess, which means for Scotland Yard, the focus is on the elite royalty protection command and its commanding officer. Entrusted with protecting the most famous family on earth, they quite simply have to be the best. Weak link could spell disaster. Detective Chief Inspector William Warwick and his elite Scotland Yard squad are charged with investigating the team. Maverick ex-undercover operative Ross Hogan is charged with a very sensitive and unique responsibility, but it soon becomes clear the problems in royalty protection are just the beginning. A renegade organization has the security of the country and the crown in its sights. The only question is which target is next in line? Dun, dun, dun. Now, for our listeners, they often ask this question. How can they write about historical figures in fiction in a way that's not going to get them sued? And what advice do we have for them? Now, you've written about Princess Diana. You've written about Margaret Thatcher in your novels. So what is your advice there and what's your approach? Well, in both cases, I knew them. Very well. With Margaret Thatcher, I had the privilege of working with her for 11 years, so knew her very well, and she became a close personal friend. Uh, in the case of Diana, I worked with her on her charities, was her auctioneer. I used to do her auctions for her charities, and uh, we became friends. I didn't realize until I looked back at the letters and realized that Mary and I had visited her home, she had visited our home, that perhaps we were closer than I realized, and I've not written about that at all. But as you know, William Warwick leaves school and becomes a constable on the beat and works first in art protection. In the first book, Nothing Ventured. And in each book, he has a different 
section he belongs to, and he's a different rank. And he's now reached, as you said, chief inspector, and he's now in charge of royalty protection. So suddenly I thought, I worked with Princess Diana. I watched her in that situation. And what I've put at the beginning of the book, which I hope you found wicked and cunning, is I put on page one, is this a true story? And what you have to decide, is this something I experienced with Princess Diana, or is it in fact something I made up? Now, there are five or six stories about Princess Diana that run through the book, and you have to decide which ones I did make up and which ones I experienced when I was with her. Yeah, it keeps the reader on their toes and it keeps them guessing. And such a lovely tribute to her, I think, because you do portray her so honestly, but showing so much of her humanity, her empathy, etc. So I think perhaps if you had written a book, which you obviously would not have done with Princess Diana, but let's say you had known someone in real life and portrayed them in a rather unfavorable light, is that the kind of thing where then you have to be careful of as an author when you fictionalize a real person and might get sued? You're quite right. You're quite right. But that's not my style. I'm not interested in running people down or being clever, clever. There's enough people who can do that. No, I was delighted that two members of the royal family have already read the book and were kind enough to send letters saying how much they enjoyed it. That was a relief in the sense that after what you just said, Bianca, I would have hated a member of the royal family to write to me and say, you've insulted Diana or you've insulted the royal family. Exactly the opposite is true. That's not the game I'm in. I'm an entertainer. I had the privilege of knowing Princess Diana, and she comes into the books. And it's been touching how many people have enjoyed that, because they see another side of her. They see the side of her when she was working, and I had the privilege of being by her side, watching it happen. And of course, it's now been stated very clearly on in the press that on the day she stood back from public life, made that famous speech at the Hilton Hotel. The Prime Minister, at her request, asked me to spend the whole day with her and be with her for the whole of that very telling day. So I suppose that's the moment when I realized that we were close friends. She wanted someone close by who could get her through the day. So I'm not in the game of telling stories out of school. I'm in the game of entertaining. I want you to turn the page. Yeah, which happened at lightning pace with this novel. So let's talk about the research, because I know with every novel you do, you have to do a ton of research. This one was no different. So can you talk us through that process? Well, I do it at two levels. I always say to young writers, research is at two levels. One is where you go to a library, or nowadays you can look up everything on a Google. That's one. Two is human beings. So in the case of the William Warwick series, I have a chief superintendent, John Sutherland, who was head of the murder squad and retired after a mental breakdown in which he described one murder too many, and a detective sergeant, Michelle Roycroft, who worked for 20 years in the drug squad. They both retired. So they read about the fourth or fifth draft of the book to make sure I haven't made silly mistakes. So perhaps it's not a desk sergeant, but a custody sergeant. The sort of mistake every policeman reading the book would go, I'm not reading any further. He doesn't even know that much. And then there's the other side where they tell me stories. And sometimes the stories 
don't work, but sometimes a bit of magic comes up. I have to rewrite it, twist it, turn it, do all sorts of things. But they come up with a bit of magic. And they also, on every subject, as I said to Bianca, every book is a new subject. This is royalty protection. So they got the recently retired commander in charge of royalty protection to come and see me and talk through the biggest problems he'd ever had. And then they got a lady detective inspector who was moved in 20, 25 years ago to sort out the problems that the royalty protection squad were having with theft and what they were up to. And because it was 20, 25 years ago, she was very open and very honest. She didn't want the names to be mentioned. She didn't want the actual crimes they were up to mentioned. But she gave me so much stuff that I had two stories at once. The one of the head of royalty protection being a crook and the other taking care of Princess Diana. So you run these two through as separate themes in the book. But of course, they come together because it's all royalty protection. So the answer to your question is, I think research with people is every bit as important as research with books or whatever you want, however you want to do it. I'd say half and half. So this morning, I was reading a great deal about Thomas Jefferson and Franklin and Hamilton, because that's in the next book. So I was getting a lot of research done with writing. Now, I can't meet Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, but I can meet the leading professors in one of the great Lee universities, either in the United States or here, and sit down with them and just listen for hour upon hour. Now, a lot of it you just dismiss immediately, and then a piece of magic comes up. Give you an example. I wrote a book many years ago called Paths of Glory about did Mallory in 1924 conquer Everest. His body was found 700 foot from the top. Was he on the way up or was he on the way down? And I thought, this is magic. This is a magic story. So I went to the leading authority on Everest, a lady called Mrs. Selkin, and I would sit with her for hours. And most of it was in her very, very good nonfiction book. And then she'd touch a piece of magic. And then I went to Bear Grylls. And I said to Bear Grylls, I'm 700 foot from the top, Bear. Give me the last 700 foot. And he talked me through what he went through, conquering the last 700 feet. So it's people. And the things he said, you know, about how he rested, how he thought he'd never get there, how even when he was 40 foot from the top, he thought he was going to faint and not make. All these things were just magic. And I like to listen to people who've been through amazing experiences and take them and put that in the book. And I would think nine-tenths of it, you're simply listening. And then a little magic comes up and you think, yes, the reader will never believe that. They'll never believe it in a hundred years, but they will believe it because they know I've spoken to someone who's been through it. Right. And on the podcast, we're always talking about leaning into specificity because that is where the magic happens. It's in the details. It's in those specific details that only someone who's been there, somebody who really knows, that's what makes a story authentic. You're quite right. If you can get a sentence, and often it's only a sentence, where someone does something or says something that hasn't crossed your mind, but you realize immediately that's what an officer does the first time he sees a body. That sentence is the sentence that comes out and they go, oh my God, he's seen a body. He's been there. He's touched. And I'm looking for that always. I'm looking for that 
magic moment when they tell you something that the man in the street doesn't know. That's the fun. And I push for that the whole time when I'm researching with a human being. I say, boring, boring, boring. How did you find out he'd murdered him? And then they say, well, and then he's boring, boring. Oh, magic. Give me more of that. Magic, keep going. To them, as the policeman or policewoman, it sometimes isn't magic. It's part of the everyday job. And they don't realize that the public will be fascinated by that. And it can be something so mundane as the hours they spend waiting for something to happen. Hours. Well, you can't do 200 pages on them sitting waiting. The reader won't tolerate that. The reader wants action. So you have to, you have to write the sentence. And 14 hours later, the blind went up and it wasn't what he expected to see in the window. You know, then you're on the way, but you don't need 14 hours of sitting waiting for the blind to go up. And that is a great problem, both in films, theater and writing, is you've got to make the person feel the 14 hours has gone by, but you cannot spend 120 pages doing it. And we've all read authors who spend 120 pages doing it. And some of them write brilliantly. But I wonder often how many people get as far as the end of the 120 pages. Yeah, without skimming, definitely. And something that you've said now reminded me of the memoir that I read of a South Africa's leading detective. He's now passed away. His name was Pitt Bailerfelt. And he was the first detectives to crack the case of one serial killer who was working with two totally different modus operandi. One, he was killing tailors in Johannesburg. I think it was Muslim tailors in Johannesburg, killing them one way. And the other was killing sex workers and dumping their bodies in the mine dumps, killing them a totally different way. And the way he figured out that it was the exact same killer was when he went to one of the tailors, he went through his list of, you know, they used to have those old-fashioned spikes on which they used to put a piece of paper with the client's details, and there was one phone number on that. He went through a list of 100 phone numbers on that spike, and one phone number correlated with the phone number in one of the sex workers' phones. So it's amazing how something like hours of going through pieces of paper means correlating one phone number, which brings a whole case together. Yes, you see, what you see in films a lot is you see it because they can't do it any other way. The detective knocks on the door, the person isn't important. The detective knocks on the door, the person isn't important. The detective knocks on the door, the person isn't important. The detective knocks on, ah, here's the person who helped me. Because you can't knock on the first door and get the answer you want. That I understand. And so detail, you're quite right to be angry. Meticulous, hard work on detail to get a little fact that gives the whole thing away. And if that little fact is fascinating, the reader loves it. Because they say, oh, I didn't spot that. Oh, I didn't see that coming. But you can't bluff how many hours it takes to get to that little fact. You're quite right. It's very demanding. But you mustn't, as I said, bore the reader. Because real life, as many a detective tells me, real life is pretty damn boring. You don't solve the crime in 10 minutes unless they want you to solve the crime in 10 minutes. In fact, they have, the police have what they call the golden hour. If they haven't captured the criminal within one hour, they're up against it. Within two hours, they're really up against it. Within 24, they probably got away with it. So it's little things like that. When they make a statement like that, you think, oh, I must tell my reader that. I must let them know. But they know immediately the golden hour to them. They know at 59 minutes, 
58 minutes. They know how long they've got. And often the crime is, as they point out to me, crime is settled in an hour. If a man has killed his wife or it's a domestic murder of some sort, it often is. In fact, I think I'd go as far as saying eight times out of 10 it is. But of course, that isn't the story one's writing. One's writing the story about the, the odd person who does something that you just don't expect and you have to track them down and catch them. And I'm sure you've read in the press, I do with fascination, that the police sometimes are looking at a case that's 20 years old and still trying to find out who the murderer is. And so they, they, ne- they never give up. It's relentless. But as you rightly say, it's most important to get the facts right and not make it look as if it's all too easy. But at the same time, you mustn't bore the reader. And readers are sensible about this. They know that you've only got 400 pages. They know you have to take some shortcuts. And the way I do that normally is I'll end a chapter or a section with a sentence, move on to some other aspect in the book, and then go back to it three days later. So the reader says, oh, yeah, I know what's happened in the three days. They've been working away like slaves, and now they've discovered this. So there are techniques for doing it, certainly. I'll admit to that. And as you get older and you become more of a craftsman, those techniques become easier. But the whole book doesn't become any easier. They still take a thousand hours. Yeah. And each book teaches you how to write it. So it's not like you get better at the writing of the books because each story is different. Right. Jeffrey, we have now come to the end of our time. The half an hour has just raced by. Thank you so, so much for joining us. For our listeners, we will link to the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it from there, you support the podcast and you support an independent bookstore. Jeffrey, thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, Bianca. It's been a privilege to be on your show. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.